Maria Pod, brought to you by Transition Solutions. Your host for today's episode is one of our senior consultants and a member of the podcast team, Ms. Joan Blake. My name is Joan Blake. I'm a senior consultant with Transition Solutions, and I'm here today with Kathleen Yancey. Kathleen, who goes by Kathy, is the Kellogg Hunt Professor of English and a distinguished research professor at Florida State University. Welcome, Kathy. Well, thanks so much. Thanks for the invitation to join you. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing a little bit about your career and uh, capturing some advice for our listeners. So let's just start with uh, you telling us a little bit about your early life in education and how it influenced your career choices and directions. Sure. Uh, Well, I think... um, I am, like uh, most people, a product of her time. Uh, and in my case, um, most most women, uh, when I was a child, didn't have careers other than within the home. So I didn't really think very much about what I would be, you know, when I grew up. Other than, I have to say, I did want to be an actress. Aha! Uh, uh, the world has been saved. <laughs> um, and Meryl Streep is not threatened? No. And actually, Meryl <laughs> Streep is my alter ego, just in case. Thank you for sharing that. that everyone now knows this. If you mistakenly think you see, you mistakenly think you see Meryl, that's actually yours truly. Uh, uh, but in in high school, uh, I was very active in English related activities. Um, uh, I was in fact uh, elected most dramatic of my graduating class. Well, congratulations! Of five hundred and sixty two people, very com- class. competitive. Yeah, but I I I'm I am not the um, dullest bulb on the tree, and when they're casting a Macbeth and you get to play a witch. This is a sign, I hope not of my personality, who knows, but definitely not going to be the lead here. And um, I also uh, was an editor in the school newspaper, um, so I was interested in all things English, and perhaps not surprisingly, actually, when I um, went to college, I majored uh, initially uh, in history, uh-huh. uh, thinking that I would be um, a teacher, uh, largely because um, uh, my guidance counselor and some others had cautioned me in high school when I suggested I might want to be a lawyer that I really didn't want to be a lawyer, that I would want to be a teacher uh, because uh, that would be handy should my husband, whom I didn't have yet, uh, <laughs> died. So I would have something to do during the, you know, I would be off during the summers, and I would have a career that would keep me close to my children. So that's what I mean when I say I'm a product of my own time. Um, thinking of a career or aspirationally uh, in that regard, was certainly not encouraged, one might go so far as to say discouraged. So in college, I began majoring in history, thinking about this career I could fall back on when my husband, whom I hadn't even met, had already died. How sad is that? Uh, and, um, and I was also taking English classes, and they came much more easily to me. Uh, English was like breathing. History was a little more of an effort. Um, and uh, the other thing that happened that really was fundamental uh, was that I had some young professors, and I simply identified with them, and I thought that the intellectual work was really interesting. I thought working with people who are college age would have a different set of challenges uh, to it than um, working with high school kids. Um, I liked the idea of being a scholar, uh, and so that uh, shift, which occurred really uh, in, uh, beginning in the sophomore year, um, has pretty much everything to do with uh, where I am today. That is a humorous and fascinating story. Well, thank you. Thank you. <coughs> uh, and so what is typically required to become a scholar and professor? 
Uh, that's a great question, and uh, the short answer is it depends on where you in, where you land institutionally. So you can be um, employed at a teaching intensive uh, college or university, which um, could be a two-year school, could be a four-year school. Uh, and uh, as you'll uh, know from my uh, describing it as teaching intensive, your responsibilities really are um, teaching. Um, you may have some support to do some scholarship or to attend and present at conferences, but that's not um, really the activity that will determine your future at such an institution. Um, at more research-oriented institutions, which um, Florida State is one, um, you're, I mean, you can, I can sort of lay out for you what my responsibilities are. Uh, the, most of my colleagues in the department have what's called a 2-2 load meaning that they teach two courses each term. There is, of course, committee work um, as well. But scholarship, and there's, I should say, working with students involves working with graduate students, and in particular with doctoral students. And doctoral students are sort of like your children. They don't ever go away. Um, so you're working with them whether you're on contract or not. Uh, and they have to work throughout the 12 months, or they won't complete in any reasonable amount of time. Um, but really, um, a, a good chunk of your load uh, is to be spent on scholarly publication. Our department is very oriented to books. So to be tenured and promoted, you have to have one scholarly book. It has to be at a reputable press, and hopefully it's gotten good reviews. Um, you also have to have a couple of articles accompanying those, and you have to have plans for your next book. That kind of schedule uh, does not change over time. We are reviewed every year as employees, and in order to get the highest merit, uh, you every three years, you have to have one scholarly book, single author, or seven peer-reviewed articles in top-tier journals. Not book reviews. Uh, um, so it's uh, rigorous, <laughs> to put it mildly. Uh, and so you can see that your activities would be distributed um, very differently at that kind of institution than they are at a more teaching-intensive place. Mm -hmm. And how do you acquire the discipline and the skill to write? That's a great question. Um, and you're quite right. Uh, discipline um, is at the heart of it. In theory, um, you develop a skill throughout the course, not so much of your undergraduate education, though certainly people are doing a lot of writing then at places that support writing as they should. But um, as a function of getting a master's and then a PhD, um, you're doing a lot of writing, um, both smaller projects um, and uh, larger projects, uh, a thesis um, uh, for the master's, uh, which is uh, a larger project spanning anywhere from um, 60 to 100 plus pages, and a dissertation, which is, is not a book, but is a book-length project. Um, so you learn how to do smaller and larger projects, and, and, in, and in good uh, graduate programs, um, uh, students are professionalized. So they are writing conference proposals, they are writing conference papers, they are learning how to translate those conference papers into published articles. So in theory, um, you learn all the pieces in a, in a good graduate program, but notice I keep you know, qualifying that with the adjective good, um, but in practice, um, because your life as a faculty member is really very different than your life as a graduate student, um, you, you have to figure out how you're going to make that work at your institution. And that also depends in part on what your responsibilities are. It helps to, um, 
have some sense of how um, uh, to schedule your days. I, I advised a former um, uh, an alum, a former student of ours, at, at one point, and he was trying to figure this out. And we actually met at a conference, and and we're having coffee, and he 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 didn't have enough time. And he, had he didn't ex- have enough time to complete his yes to thank you to complete his projects and 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 he ex- had explained to me his schedule Monday to Friday and then I of course asked the natural question which an academic would ask if you're you know trying to do this kind of work and I said and how about the weekends and he said oh I enjoy those and I said wrong answer <laughs> see right if you're going to do this kind of work your weekends actually they count as one of well two in this case of the seven days of the week and uh, and I said to him you know you don't have to work all good news you don't have to work all day Saturday and Sunday but if you don't work some if you don't count that time in your writing schedule uh, that's why you are where you are now um, and so it requires a certain um, I, I think a certain kind of passion for the projects you're engaged in a certain set of um, uh, uh, plots of time also the last thing I'll say about that is knowing um, knowing when you're most productive at what kinds of activities. So some people are better, they like to write their way to midnight. Other people are early morning risers and that's what works for them. You need, you and, and graduate students in general, uh, don't do that. I, it's a good question as to why they don't, but that's something that faculty really need to figure out. But they also need, you know, that's the thing. You know, as a graduate student, you, you have an advisor, or a mentor who's saying, Okay, so when am I going to see your next chapter? When are you going to propose to this conference? You've got somebody who's really guiding you. And it makes a huge, and also giving you a lot of feedback, helping you become a member of a writing group, maybe. And some places have mentors for faculty. Um, but in general, you really need to figure this out on your own. And people who can do that um, and who are successful at getting published, the fact that you can do that doesn't mean anything's accepted or published. If you can do all of that and you like all of this, it's a wonderful career, but if you don't, it, it could be sheer misery. Mm, interesting. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about um, higher education in general, and I remember sure. a uh, dean of a graduate school when I was talking about changes at the graduate school with her, maybe 10, 20 years ago even, uh-huh. and she said, Joan, higher mm. education hasn't changed <laughs> since the 14th century. Well, yes. And no. I think if <laughs> I had that conversation with her today, she'd yeah. talk about many changes. Yes. One of which is technology. Yes. So how has technology impacted your career? Well, in my case, it's impacted it um, enormously. Uh, I... Um, uh, I'm not just a professor of English. My particular interests are um, in writing studies, and um, you know, like most faculty who look like me, you know, I would tell you these are my areas of specialization, and one of them is the impact of technologies on writing. So it's changed um, my career. In so, so a, 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 most of the courses that I teach now, I could not have taken, in when I was a graduate student, right. because the technologies did not exist. Right. So. In in that sense, it's affected my career enormously because, and I and I have people who um, write me all the time um, uh, to ask about updates on things I've done earlier with reference to technologies. But the other thing is that it's it's really changing higher ed. Um, you probably know something about learning analytics, uh, which is a reference to the use of large data 
uh, to forecast, sometimes to assist. And in the case of higher ed, it's to assist students. So if you um, had data indicating that um, uh, certain students were not coming to all of their classes, you would have a trigger to contact them and see what's going on and see how helpful it can be. So that's part of it. And of course, the classroom itself has changed. So. Um, you know, when I started teaching, uh, believe it or not, um, I was using a, a ditto machine and an overhead projector. Awesome. Awesome. And today I tend to teach in a seminar room that has desktops, has projection capability, but um, to which the students bring their laptops, uh, their iPads, and, and their cells. Um, and that's very much uh, part of what we do, the kinds of assignments um, that I make. So for instance, um, in a couple of classes, an option is for students uh, to write articles for Wikipedia. Another uh, option is for them to curate exhibits for an online museum of everyday writing that I sponsor. So the writing tasks themselves are very different. And what's great about writing for Wikipedia is that you know students may think that their teachers are harsh, I'll tell you, you write something that Wikipedia doesn't like, and you are erased overnight with no human empathy at all. I mean, you are just gone, and and it's astonishing for students. And and Wikipedia, because it sees itself as an encyclopedia, insists that you be neutral in what you teach. You know, not what you share. And and if it's, I mean, this really gives new meaning to the word neutral because if it's not neutral, as I say, I mean, it's gone. So changing technologies affects pretty much every aspect of what we're doing, whether it's helping students um, outside the classroom, teaching students inside the classroom, and in my case, engaging in scholarship. Interesting. So if you had not become an academic and you decided not to threaten Meryl Streep, what else might you have done? It's a great question. Um, and I do actually, I, I, I do joke about the Meryl Streep thing. Meryl, so good to talk to you. Uh, but um, uh, there are two areas, two or three, that I'm uh, fascinated by and uh, know just tiny bits about, enough to make me dangerous. So one is architecture. Uh, I, I think I'd like to be, you know, there are architects who build things. That's the way we think about architecture, uh, ordinarily. But there are also theoretical art architects who design something that may never get built. I could do that. I think, and that, and given my math skills, I think that's exactly where we'd want to point me. I know I, I love architecture. I love uh, postmodern architecture. I love the issues around architecture. Um, you know, there's a theory that uh, buildings teach you um, what you might want to do in them. There's a whole idea of art. There's a there's a something of a shift in architecture from the architect as the originary genius, not unlike uh, writers as the originary uh, geniuses, to um, the notion of a built environment as fostering certain kinds of relationships. Um, so all of that is just um, enormously interesting to me. Another area that I um, find fascinating is weather. Um, I could be Kathy the weather girl, uh, just just what the world needs. Um, I, I just find it, I, I find very, very interesting, and of course in the context of global warming, uh, sobering, but also very interesting, and related to that is climate. But the other thing is I'm very interested, I, I don't want to be in a natural disaster, but I'm very interested in natural disaster, and, and earthquakes in particular, but a little hurricanes as well. And also the impact of something like an earthquake, or a hurricane for that matter, on um, 
on history or historical events. So, for instance, uh, the 1906 San Francisco earthquake um, resulted in there being created a database, um, a, a, a geological database, that is still the best of, the very best of its kind in history um, of earthquake-related geological features. That's, that's just enormously interesting to me. The other thing is, the reason you have L.A. as such a prominent port is that you had San Francisco. And a- after the earthquake, you can see I have a real interest in history, so I should probably put that on the list. A- 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 L.A. engaged in a very interesting set uh, of propaganda pieces, saying basically, we're earthquake-free, come to us. And it worked. Um, you have Houston today uh, as a major port because of a of, of hurricane in 1900 in Galveston that wiped out Galveston um, uh, in a way that no one fully appreciated at the time because so many bodies were washed out to sea. So I'm very interested both in the events themselves, but also in the historical aftermath of the events. So I have, and I could go on, I will spare you, um, I have lots of other interests that, um, that I, you know, would have been wonderful to pursue, but to go back to my earlier anecdote, you know, I'm not alone in this, but women of my generation were not encouraged uh, to think of themselves as anything other than um, wives and mothers. And then if we did have, you know, to have, if we must have a career, to engage in um, uh, female, at the time, female-oriented careers, teaching and nursing being most prominent among them, short of being a nun. Well, you don't mention being an attorney, and that, you said, was your original interest. You know, I think to be a good attorney, you certainly would need to read well, write well, and, and argue well. Uh, and I, so I think I might have um, some of the needed uh, abilities there. I, I, one of the things that a little concerns me about law today, that I don't think I was, I mean, I obviously was aware of it, but... Law, as a colleague of mine pointed out to me once, he actually started law school and he dropped out. And I asked him why. He's a Quaker. And he said that he didn't, he did not want to inhabit um, a world oriented to winners and losers and because of his Quaker faith. And I hadn't, honestly, I just hadn't thought of it in quite those terms, although it's pretty obvious that one might. I don't think that kind of adversarial world is one that I would find uh, emotionally or mentally healthy for me. Mm-hmm. Clearly, people do it, and we need people who are good, ethical lawyers. Uh, but if people will sort of gravitate the things they're good at, we all don't need to do the same thing. Okay. So as you think back on your career, what is one lesson that stands out for you that you learned and that maybe even you sometimes share with people? But one lesson is to engage as fully as you can. Even when opportunities come your way that don't seem directly related to what you're doing, if they're of interest to you and you think you can make a contribution, my approach has always been to say yes. Um, it was a running joke with my husband. Uh, I would come home when I was a graduate student and say, you know, I have this invitation, this opportunity to do X, Y, or Z. And, and he would look at me mystified and say, why would you want to do that? And my honest answer was, I'm not sure. Uh, but I think it will pay off in some way. If it doesn't, I'll have an interesting experience and maybe have made a contribution, but it really could play out in some way. And my experience 
um, my experience really has been um, a succession of episodes like that where I've said yes to something that is a little marginal, is a little sidebar, a little peripheral, but I've said yes to it and it's helped me out in some way uh, down the line. And, uh, and I think part of why my career has been so rewarding is, is precisely because I've benefited from those episodes. So you talk about your rewarding career, and if we break that down to day by day, what does a good day look like? Ah, What's okay. a rewarding day for you? Well, a rewarding day is where you get a teaching award, um, <laughs> you get a book award, um, you get a service award, that's a good day. Um, I, but more, more seriously, uh, a good day is when you engage in activities that lead you to all of those. So a good day is where you're either teaching a new course, let's say, or you're teaching a new uh, lesson inside a course, and and it goes as planned. So you're totally energized and excited, and you want to do more of that. Um, a good day is when you've been working on a curricular vision, revision for a long time, and it passes the department or passes the college, so it's going to come to life now. A good day is when you've worked really hard on an article, and it's um, a book project, and it's very common uh, to get a revise and resubmit response initially, which means you have to do exactly what it says, revise and resubmit it, and the resubmit means you're starting all over. Um, and when you, you get the email that says, we're accepting it, and it's it's in the queue for publication. Um, those are those are really really wonderful days. They're also wonderful days when students you've worked with have gotten such a letter themselves, um, or when a student comes to you and they're very excited because they've just curated exhibit an exhibit for the Museum of Everyday Writing, or where they tell you that now they understand audience in an entirely different way because they've been writing for the public. So good days can take you know many, many forms, but they, I think a really good day, um, touches every aspect of this diverse kind of career. So would it be true for the opposite? What does a bad day look like? Uh, you know, a bad day, you know, a bad day, it's um, like a colleague of mine had come back from sabbatical and, you know, she just, in, in her teaching, was having a, that wasn't the whole term, but she had a succession of bad days. It was really hard to switch from that. You know, on sabbatical, you're really focused on a project and you're, you know, and that's, you're immersed in that. Um, then to return to teaching, which is very outward oriented, it just took her a while to get back her teaching chops. That would be, you know, a, a bad day where you go into class, especially if you're teaching something you've taught before and it's always going beautifully. And all of a sudden, and that wouldn't require a sabbatical. It could just be a different group of students and it's not working. And you have to, and even though you've taught for, you know, decades, am I, am I, you know, am I losing it? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not good at this anymore. Is it really a different group of students? Is it a different group of students that's anomalous or is it a different group of students that is forecasting the way students are going to be next year and the year following? So it really raises lots of interesting questions. So you work really hard on an article and the reviewers don't read the same article you sent in and they reject it, you know, out of hand, especially something you've worked really hard on. Like have, have a particular piece I've worked on with three of my former advisees. We sent it to one journal, revise and resubmit, got a ding. Sent it to another journal, revise and resubmit, got a ding. You know, for me at my point in my career, you know, it's disappointing and it's annoying because I don't think the, really, I don't think the reviewers in either case read what we sent on. But for my graduates, they were my graduate students at the time, 
I don't like the expression of my graduate students, but they were certainly my advisees. Um, and, and, and it's not even so much that um, they are now in tenure line positions, so they need the publication. It's more that I wanted them, I, I wanted them to see the field differently than it was showing itself to be. And, and that was, that's really disappointing. So a lot, a lot of times, a bad day, bad days are really things where you're really, you know, trying to work with other people and it's not, it's not going as planned. And so you have to jump back. It keeps you vulnerable. It keeps you humble. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So humble. Um, what, what role, if any, has luck played in your career? I think luck has played a lot, uh, in my career. Um, it, 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 you know, it's just the aphorism about it helps to be um, the right person at the right place at the right time, and um, and I have been. Um, I moved from UNC Charlotte, where I taught for nine years, um, to Clemson. Um, Clemson invited me to apply for uh, a titled professorship, and one of the reasons they uh, invited me, I believe, is that I'd done a workshop for them. Well, it happens that they'd invited me to do the workshop. It happens that I said yes. It happens that it went well. I mean, it was a trifecta, but you know, you know, you you can't predict that. Um, I think I've been very lucky um, in that I have a really wonderful group of friends, some on campus, some around the country, and I think of them as my brain trust, and they will tell me things I don't want to hear. I think that's been enormously helpful for to me, and I think I've been very lucky that I met them and that they were gracious enough to like me. And I think that makes a difference. And I, so I think there are a, a, a lot of things going on here. I, I mean, I think, um, I think sometimes luck is also a function of risk. Uh, when I moved from Clemson to Florida State, that was for quite a few reasons, um, a, a somewhat risky move to make, and it wasn't at all needed. Um, things were perfectly fine uh, at Clemson, but I decided to take the risk. And that was a lucky thing to do. Um, turns out that um, Florida State uh, wants precisely the kinds of things that I want to do. So in that sense, it's a wonderful fit. But the other thing about it is that it put me in a very different kind of department, doing a very different kind of work. There would be no Museum of Everyday Writing had I not gone to Florida State because I was influenced by the kind of work that many of my colleagues do which got me interested in everyday writing in the first place. So that's what luck can do. You know, luck can provide a sweet spot, to mix our metaphors here, um, and understanding that that's a sweet spot and taking advantage of it has everything to do with how things will play out. So if you were giving advice to someone starting out who was aspiring to an academic life, what would you, what would you advise them to do? Uh, well, one thing that's been inherent in everything that I've said, but I haven't articulated explicitly, is to pay attention. You just have to pay attention to what's going on in your campus, but also what's going on in the field. I also think you should pay attention to what's going on in the world. The reason that I'm interested in digital technologies um, is not because of what was going on campus, and really not so much. There was some, there was activity around that in the field. I wouldn't want to dismiss that. And very important activity, but really, I was influenced by what was going on in the world. Um, I'm uh, just to give you an example. Uh, I'm giving a paper at an invitation-only event uh, hosted by the University of Alabama on digital rhetoric, and my particular talk um, 
uh, is on uh, the Parkland uh, students and how they have used digital rhetoric uh, to move from uh, the effort focused on guns and 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 removing guns uh, uh, from our everyday life um, to turning out the vote of young people. This is this is colossally different. So what will I learn from those lessons of? you know, 17, 18, 19-year-olds um, that we can apply um, in our classrooms. That's that's really interesting. So it's a real orientation to those three spheres, um, the campus, the, our, our field, our discipline, um, but then the world at large. So I think paying attention is important. I think you asked me about other facets of success, which have to do with being disciplined, having a short-term, long-term goal, and understanding the difference between those, having a brain trust, counting on that brain trust, but contributing to that brain trust. You just don't take from it, you contribute, and you always pay it forward. Um, it's important to contribute. It's also important to continue learning, uh, trying to balance both of those. And you can't spend a lot of time having fun. If this is fun for you, um, that that really is motivating, but you should have a little time off the clock, just a little. <laughs> well, that's great. Thank you very much. We wish you all the best at your talk. Thank you. I enjoyed it very much.